0: Welcome to our podcast, Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson.
1: And I'm Gary Anderson.
0: And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today we're going to provide an overview of Season 1 of Star Trek Picard. Overall, did we enjoy it? Yes. Uh, would we recommend others to see it?
1: Absolutely, yes.
0: Was the series perfect?
1: No, not at all.
0: Hmm. So for this podcast our aim is not to spend much time rehashing topics we've already devoted a lot of time to on previous podcasts. Instead we'll identify our favorite episodes and characters as well as characters who were underdeveloped. Then we will talk about what we'd like to see for season two before closing the podcast. Uh, with an added feature where we'll cite some of the comments of our listeners. And then we'll also mention a couple of Star Trek news items. But before delving into those topics, we would like to begin our analysis by discussing an important theme in the Picard series that was raised and nurtured throughout the season, but left unresolved. Sure, let's start off with that. But um, by the way, our analysis does contain a lot of spoilers, so you should probably watch the series before listening to this podcast. Now, Gary, why don't we just get started?
1: Well, I'm gonna say this: if they haven't watched the series yet and they're gonna listen to our review of season one, it's on them. All <laughs> <why I listen. laughs> right. So, all right. So, uh, many Star Trek fans and reviewers in the last couple of days have used the term "epic." to describe the dramatic sweep of Star Trek Picard. You know, epic stories often include characteristics found in tragedy. For example, the central character Picard exhibits hubris or excessive pride, which led him not to investigate other ways to help the Romulans escape certain death when the Federation decided not to resume plans for their rescue from their homeworld.
0: Picard experiences another tra- trait of tragedy known as catharsis, a release of pent-up emotions. Picard undergoes catharsis when he realizes how his stubborn pride has resulted in the wasting of fourteen years of his life overseeing the operations of his French chateau
1: well. Wow. Not really overseeing them. That was the job of Laris and Zabo. Right. He, he, was just, he was walking around with the, dog. with the
0: dog. He was just really existing. <laughs> he that was. was about it. He
1: was, as he said, he was waiting to die. Yes. Yeah. In addition, epics often deal with lofty themes of universal importance or of cons- universal consequences. As audience members, we are to learn from the dramatization of such themes and relate them to similar circumstances in our own lives. Uh, That certainly seems to be the case with the Picard series, as early on the show set up the theme of dealing with outcasts or undesirable people, and the writer, specifically headed by uh, Michael Chabon, appeared to build on this theme throughout the entire season, and we'll now discuss how those themes manifested themselves
0: throughout the series. So uh, first I want to talk about the children of data. So this theme of discarded beings, uh, of course, placed prominently in the sense storyline as the Federation wrestled with the question as to whether sense should be considered as senti- sentient beings and thereby be granted the rights of self-determination and freedom expected of any Federation citizen.
1: As stated in previous episodes, the debate between sentience and what key identifiers constitute evidence of a new independent life form was debated throughout the seven-season run of TNG, and this is the most evident in the story arc of Data. Episodes such as Measure of Man and Offspring, as well as the subplot of the movie uh, Star Trek First Contact, all involve Data's quest Becoming a real boy, as Q describes him. In fact, in Encounter at Farpoint, when Data meets Riker, they have an exchange where the last thing he says them before the end of the scene is, "Oh, call, he calls Data Pinocchio. <laughs> so th- that's been set up from the very beginning. Uh, for the most part, the conclusion in is in the affirmative. Data is seen as a sentient, artificial being, and should be treated in the same way other conscious living creatures are. However, in the Picard series, this issue is not given the same thoughtful, comprehensive treatment as it was in TNG. That is, with the exception of the last 15 minutes of episode 10.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. So within six years of the sacrifice of Data's life in 2379, we find evidence via the Children of Mars short trek that synths are treated as objects, yep. tools to serve organic-based life forms. At the Utopia Planitia shipyards on Mars, dozens of synths are stored in a large closet as if they are commodities. They serve needed utilitarian functions, but are ridiculed by organic beings who, with few exceptions, fail to treat them with compassion.
1: After the sense are b- blamed for carrying out the attack on Mars that killed over 90,000 people, the Federation bans the creation of androids. Now, however, cyberneticist Bruce Maddox, Agnes Girardi, and Alton Indigo Sung carry on the research, even though there is a ban set up. And at least within 11 years of the Mars attack, Sung and Maddox create sense indistinguishable physically from human beings, but these androids possess superhuman f- physical strength and mental capacities.
0: In episode five, we learned from Maddox that he created Dodge and his sister Soji, and her sister Soji, to go to Earth and the artifact, respectively, to learn who was behind the synth band. Yet we never learned why Maddox thought the answers would lie there. On Earth, Dodge had expected to take on a position at the Daystrom Institute where Girardi worked. However, even with the assistance of Picard and Girardi, it is never revealed how they were supposed to learn about the motivation behind the band. Also, what clue did Maddox have about the artifact that he knew to send Soji there?
1: Yeah, also in episode 9, we meet Sung and learn with Maddox's assistance, he has created a community of twin scents on Capellius, but there is never a discussion of the ethics behind the creation. Right. Do these scents serve any real purpose? Should scents be created just for the sake of being able to do so? Or is this simply a grand vanity project? Uh, clearly, these scents are not treated the same, with the same rights that were ever even afforded Data. So in episode 10, Soong simply just deactivates Soji without a trial. Soong is judge and executioner, which is much different than what we've seen in in Next Generation. That's
0: right, exactly. So
1: they're sentient until we don't want to deal with them, is basically what I'm saying, because it still puts the power in the hands of the organics.
0: Yeah, I mean, he deactivates her, and Soji doesn't go... Hey, what have the what, sutra, what, what, you know? <laughs> no,
1: nobody. There's a lot of people that dis- disappear in episode 10 that nobody asks where the hell they went. Hey.
0: Also in uh, episode 10, Soji and the Sense prove themselves to be a threat to all organic life in the universe due to their willingness to summon a powerful synthetic life form they believe can destroy all organic life. Soji changes her mind at the last moment, and we are later told the Federation has decided to remove the synth band. Yes. Now, no explanation is given for this, which seems that, you know, for them to remove the band seems highly unlikely. After all, the band was first institute, instituted when it when uh, the synths were wrongly blamed to be behind the deaths of thousands of people working on Mars. So why would they lift the ban now knowing that the Synths were willing to set in motion the genocide of trillions of organic beings? We don't understand why the writers thought this issue had to be resolved within just 10 episodes. The Federation had already decided they would protect the Synths already created. Surely the writers could have carried over the synthetic life debate into the next season as a subplot.
1: And I think that would have worked actually a lot better, more plausible, because yes. when you think about a bureaucracy that does something, and again, you cited it easily that on Mars, on at at Utopia Planitia, they are not treated as sentient beings. That's They're right. treated as spare parts, as tools. They're just smart hammers.
0: Right. That's and right.
1: And when you look at it in that way, there's already a differentiation between organics and synthetics prior to the ban, prior to them actually threatening the lives of humans. So why would that same agency feel comfortable with just erasing the ban without right. any thought. I mean, yeah. if you think it's been in place for some 14 years, they might want to actually keep it exactly the way it is.
0: Right, exactly.
1: And and, and they would be hard-pressed to, to turn it over just so quickly. It just seemed to be a very convenient um, decision made right. by the writers that didn't really have any plausible motivation in the story. Yeah,
0: I mean, you know, so Soji says when she's at the at the very the last very last scene, she goes, "Oh, the band has been lifted, so now I get to travel." Well, right. you know, she's been traveling. She's been traveling, yeah. <laughs> so, and and and, it, and the federation could have said, "Okay, well, you know, um, we're gonna still we're gonna take this up, mm-hmm. you know, until that time, right. we're gonna allow sense to travel." Right. But right. but but it didn't have to be that. Okay, we just went ahead and lifted the band. Right, right,
1: right. It just it it just didn't ring strong. And and yeah. as we know bureaucratic agencies like real governmental agencies right. don't switch off no bands like that that quickly no they just, not it at takes all. years it takes years to actually change people's right. minds opinions even after you've given them all the justification for why it should happen now right that was just i just anyway we we, we beat that dead horse we don't need to go over it anymore. <laughs> okay so let's move on to another area the romulans now now this was uh, the aspect that I was really interested in from the, what we were shown at the beginning of the story. The Romulans were, as I have said before, one of the most consistent antagonists during the seven-year run of Next Generation. Um, they were scheming behind the scenes in the Klingon Civil War plot that played out on the show, and they were the focus of Spock's quest to help them through a unification process with their Vulcan cousins. So, there, and there was a number of other individual episodes throughout the seven-year run that were really, really strong pieces. But very little was even learned about their culture throughout that show, as often as we saw them. The Picard series presented us with a unique opportunity to find out what Romulans are in this post-supernova world. Um, at the beginning of the season, their presence was extremely engaging. You know, the different ways in which factions of the species had attempted to build new lives was compelling to me. And we learned that there were different factions attempting to rebuild their culture. Then we, when the Roman officers aboard the Borg cube says, if your badge begins to glow green, Run. I was hooked, you know. I mean, I, th- I thought that that was a really interesting thing, setting up the, the a real danger that that set being on the the Borg cube. Uh, but the, as the season progressed, the problem of something interesting, the promise of something interesting um, beginning to be revealed, was completely forgotten, and most of the things the Romulans did became as much an empty promise. At, as, as that warning was. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we didn't find out what the Romulan Rebirth Movement was. We didn't get to see what new forms of political structures replaced the, the Romulan Star Empire. Um, hopefully we, and, and we didn't learn a whole lot about the Quat Malat. No. So hopefully all of these things will be explored in future seasons. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I want to talk about the Borg. Okay, you go right <laughs> ahead. Because of all the villains featured on Star Trek, the Borg have always been the most frightening to me. The Borg assimilates you against your will and augments your body with cybernetic parts. Your mind, your body, and even your identity are no longer your own. You spend the rest of your life joined to the collective inside a dark cube Hurling through space, seeking to conquer other civilizations. So when watching the Picard series and hearing the Romulans had taken over the Borg cube, and you know, and the Romulans were profiting from extracting high tech. From the XBs, you think to yourself, uh-oh, you know, this is not going to end well. Right,
1: right. Well, they got that sign up there talking about how many thousands of days since the last assimilation. Right. Again, there's all this impending danger. That's danger, just this walking... tension, this right, tension. Right,
0: Then, when he hears Soji advise a civilian worker that, you know, they need to run if their bed just turned green, you know, you think to yourself, "Okay, okay. Now now you know this is not going to end well." And then you see John Luke Picard anxious about coming into the cube, and when he gets there, when the XBs calls him locutus. Not once. Yeah, twice. but twice. <laughs> and you think to yourself, "Oh man, now I know this is not going to end right, well." Right. But then you see that Hugh who is the XB uh, that we knew from back in the day that he has been instrumental in ensuring other XBs are compassionately dealt with as they attempt to reclaim their individuality and freedom amidst the intense hatred for their kind. So when Hugh is killed in a punk move by Nerissa, you think, okay, okay, now I know this is it. Now I, I really, really, really know this is not going to end well. Right. Well, then you see Seven boldly hook herself up to the mothership. She's ready to awaken thousands of the Borg drones to do her bidding and get even with the Romulans. And just as she's about to take charge of them, Narissa orders the drones released into space. But you know, Seven is still playing the queen role, so you think, can't wait to see what she's going to do now, because this really ain't going to end well. Hmm. So yeah, then, it, it, didn't, it didn't end well. You're it, right. It right. Did. And so then Seven innately knows the driving instructions for the cube. And she's able to take a thousand of light years across the galaxy to Capellius, where it is forced down to the planet's surface by gigantic mechanical flowers. Yet, it's still the mighty, mighty, mighty board Cube. Surely Seven will get it ready to kick ass when the Romulans arrive. Because no, no. you know Seven and XBs are ready for some payback. So you think, okay, okay, now I know. Now I know this is not going to end well, at least for the Romulans. Yeah, that doesn't happen. Yeah, so then Seven kicks Narissa into the abyss of the ship, of the Cube. And after Soji tells the Uber since they're no longer needed, seven leaves the x bees behind on Capellius to join the to join la serena'scr- uh, crew now say what
1: <laughs> yeah, I know I know
0: i mean really
1: they, we don't have it was in- that it that's 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 what
0: I'm saying. She just takes off, yeah. Okay, so without a doubt the Borg storyline was the most underutilized of the season. It was ripe with potential with its obvious connection to the theme of dealing with discarded beings. Yet, the, the dramatic possibilities were utterly wasted week after week. It seemed as if the writers were trying to do too much in a 10 episode season they either needed more episodes for season one to give the storyline and Hugh sacrificed justice, or they should have carried the storyline into season two. I, I,
1: I think there are ways that they could have addressed it and, uh, and, and still made it strong. Um, I just think that there were, there were decisions made. It was clear. When we got past episode six that there were some clear decisions about how much time screen time they were going to invest in certain things and they looked at the episodes and they probably ended up writing stuff that would have helped support all that but all but that was the partit- part of the scripts that were just tossed out yeah, yeah i got a feeling that that was the case because it seems to me you you had a staff of people who were fairly talented writers and That's they right. know you know and, and they
0: know and, the series
1: right and i mean with Christian bear with michael shibon you know you have folks who write books and know that they're that you have to continue to carry a, a, a reader along and likewise there are ways of doing that visually in a tv show and i just suspect that they they got to a point where they had to cut these down to a certain time frame and the, the stuff that was left out was all the stuff that would have made those those other storylines right. um, work stronger. That's so, right. So, yeah, hopefully they'll, they'll re-examine some of that stuff. Maybe it'll be built upon in later seasons, but we don't know. That's right. Okay, so one of the other things I think that was really still clear, with that was connected to what we know as Star Trek is these real-world parallels. You know, since the... Show premiered in 1966. Star Trek has used real-world events as inspiration for the show. They basically, whether it was the the Cold War or race relations or economic disparities between classes, all of the series have drawn parallels between current events and their storylines. Patrick Stewart and the producers mentioned. On more than one occasion how they were really influenced by the tensions underneath brexit the rise in nationalists uh, across Europe and other forms of xenophobic politics and how it has been had started to make the world a much more caustic and dispassionate um, place to be and they were moved by trying to address that Um, they also wanted to take advantage of looking at the racist undercurrents that form parts of this country's history. Um, and they, the show looked at how, as Adele has said before, these, these discarded people, these disposable people, and how we treat some, some people who we would call disposable. More so than any place else, it was evident in both the groups of the Borg, the X, XBs, as well as with the synthetics. And I think that what we were getting at when we're, when we're talking about the, those two communities was also looking at how we deal with the immigrant class or the lower inc- uh, economic classes of many Western countries. I mean, when you see how they were being perceived as only workers, only valuable based on what they could do, as opposed to even, and even with the XPs, how they were being valued exclusively with the technician, tech the technology that you could harvest from them you start to see how this play could play into people who we don't see as important we look at immigrants from south america and central america coming into the country and we see that there is a that there's been for the last several years a lot of tension around the influx of people from latin Spanish speaking countries. But in our current situation with this horrific pandemic that we're dealing with, who is gonna go into the fields to pick the food that we're gonna be eating? And it's gonna be those same Central and South American immigrants that we've been attempting to keep out of this country. So, I mean, the thing is they don't become important until they they are valued as important in the eyes of people who see not having them there as significant. They were if if you look at in the case of the the XBs and the and the sense, they are useful only in the context of how they are treated by people like Bejazel or by the Romulans. So this is evident in how little regard is given for the lives of Eacheb, Hugh, and other individuals that we see totally destroyed by by those groups. In both situations, we see how the show is speaking to our current conditions. And again, we see how it echoes the tensions underneath our frustrations with e- economic inequality in this country.
0: All right. So now we're going to move on and talk about our uh, favorite episodes. And so for me, this one was real easy. Uh, I really liked Stardust City Rag. Um, so, Stardust City Rag was episode 5, and 7 of 9 is back. Now, uh, Fenris Ranger, she has a score to settle concerning the gruesome torture of an XP named Icheb, who was like a son to her. Seven kills the culprit responsible for Icheb's fate, a woman named Bajazel, who it is intimated was probably kicking boots with Seven. After disposing of a Bajazel, she then shoots her way out of the scene until she can be picked up by her fellow rangers. In the role of Seven, Jerry Ryan proved herself worthy of very challenging materials. But unfortunately, I feel like the writers let her down later on.
1: I don't think she had as strong um, of scenes going forward. Um, Well, episodes going forward as she had with Stardust City Rag. No. That was was really a 7 to 9 centric episode and it really showcased her. Um, She had some small scenes, the case in point, the one with Rios in episode 10... But there wasn't a consistency throughout the rest of the this, this series. Agreed. Now, for me, my favorite episode of the season was Nepenthe. Um, it was a very emotional episode for me because it was an opportunity to see familiar characters from Next Generation be brought back. But it was also a very critical episode in the arc of the, of the series, as well as important to... Picard's journey throughout the series, this the first season. Picard was seeking purpose and meaning but had not fully thought through his plan when he was looking to get and save Soji. You know. That's why being in the company of some of Will Riker and Deanna Troy was essential to him. He needed to finally get help sorting things out, you know. It was that point when he he needed to figure out his own direction because he hadn't really thought through this thing at all, this whole mission at all. Both Deanna and Will called him out for his vulnerability and his arrogance in an attempt to get him to think straight for a change. Uh, Deanna does this when she first embraces him and she senses his illness. She can tell that he is dying. And it brings tears to her, but it, but it doesn't keep her from giving him the kind of input that she feels he needs to get him on the straight and narrow. And with with Riker, he calls him out on his arrogance and and he is less, in his less than perfect relationship he's established with Soji. So he gets them to really identify these areas that he needs to fix. And together... They get him to face realities and use his vast skills to figure out his next steps. And by doing that, by giving him that moment that to reset, to rest and reset, they Picard is able to find his way forward. The things he figures out specifically, which plays into those later episodes, is the meaning of life. And they are modeled in large part by... Will, Deanna, and their daughter, Kestra. When you hear about how they continually talk about Thad, the, the son who has passed, as if he's still alive, the importance the things he did and said and created still have a place in their lives, you talk about that that's a life that has some meaning that, that affected a group of people, his family in particular, but it gets them to understand the importance of the value of living. So anyway, I think that that's why that's that's why Nepenthe is my my favorite episode because it connects so easily to the to the um the main thing that of life and living it with purpose that is evident in the in the series.
0: Yeah, I think that's why um, after this episode, you really see Picard again. Yeah. you know he he finds himself again yeah. you know he finds those qualities yes. which as you were saying he needs to move forward right so in our next subject we want to talk about our favorite new characters And again, this was easy for me. I didn't have to think twice about it. So throughout the season, I felt most engaged by the character arc of Rafi, as well as the actors who portrayed her, Michelle Hurd. We never had the chance to know why Rafi was so loyal to Picard, but no matter how many times he disappointed her, she was always there for him. I was most touched by a subplot and my favorite episode, Stardust City Rag, in which Rafi was anxious to come to the planet Free Cloud to reconnect with her son, Gabriel Wang. However, he wanted no part of the reunion. In a heart-wrenching scene, she almost begs him to let her start a new life with him so she can start anew as part of his family. However, Gabriel refuses to let her back into his life, telling her, You just don't understand how much it sucked to be your kid. The incident propels Rafi to seek solace in her addiction. However, with a little help from Reels, she is resilient enough to find the strength within herself to clean up her act and move on with her life. Looking forward to hearing her wisecracks again next season.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of things we're looking forward to with her next season, so that we'll see how that goes. My favorite new character is Rios. And I talked about him a great deal last week. So what I really want to do is actually focus not so much on the character, but focus on the actor who helped portray the character. And that would be how versatile the Santiago Cabrera is as an actor and how much detail he put into every moment he had on screen. He had to have the hardest working job in this show because he had he had this versatile set of performances that were best seen in his creation of not one, not two, but five different and distinct personalities for the emergency holograms. You know, each one with an individually distinct dialect as well. And then on top of that, Cabrera made Cristobal Rios his sixth. And compelling character, with in many cases, nothing more than a single line of dialogue or a look. I I was really impressed in a number of the early episodes how much he got out of just how he looked at people in between saying one or two words to them very early on. If you think back on that scene with he and Agnes, when they find themselves romantically interested in one another that scene is really more about how he looks at her and less what he's saying and you know and and i adele and i have talked about this a lot you know off off offline when we talk about star trek one of the most obvious things you can see is the training of the actors most of the star trek captains are theater trained actors And it's really evident in how they approach the task of creating these very three-dimensional characters, how they approach, how they deliver their lines, and and in many occasions, how they build their characters more in between their lines than with the words they actually say. And I think that that it's very clear here that Cabrera is another one of these uh, actors who has a capacity for really building the subtext and nuances of a character in how he presents them fully. He lives in that character. Um, I'm, I'm not completely on board, as, as I say, with his relationship with Agnes. We'll have to see how that plays out, but I am definitely looking forward to sitting down and watching more from this very enigmatic character and this phenomenal actor.
0: So now we're going to move into our next category, which is the most underdeveloped character. So for me, Bruce Maddox is that character. So in other podcasts, we frequently mentioned our dissatisfaction with the lack of development uh, in the character of Dr. Bruce Maddox, who was based on a character first introduced to us in TNG. There is a difference between creating a character and a plot device. Unfortunately, Maddox in the Picard series must be classified in the latter category. In the only episode he appeared, Stardust City Rag, the character is alive just long enough to serve as the object of Picard's quest to locate Dodge's twin. Once Maddox divulges Soji's whereabouts, the Cybernetus is killed by his former mentee and lover, Dr. Girardi. Girardi's only punishment for the deed is a few days of guilt, which for some reason made her sexually attractive to Rios. Even after Rios learned Gerardi murdered her, he seemed to have no qualms about her being her boo. So apparently Maddox meant little to her or even too soon who was supposedly Maddox's research partner. Yes, Soong does disparage Girardi by saying she killed a good man. In fact, he later deactivates Sutra for the same crime. <laughs> <laughs> but he seems to put Girardi's transgression aside because he wants to use her talents. Soung also remarks the synth band had brought up out the deceptive side of Maddox. I might even call it devious," he says. So, what does Sung mean by that comment? You know, what way was he this deceptive? And but I guess we'll never know because the writers chose not to take this any further. Well,
1: I know that Brent Spiner is looking forward to the possibility of coming back as um, Alton Sung, but. I don't know if they're going to invest. I, we don't know if that's going to be how they're going to invest using his character. I would like to believe that they might want to finish up some of the, the plot threads that were left undone at the end of this series. Relating specifically with Maddox. Because I think Maddox and the character I'm going to talk about were more plot devices than they were fully rendered characters. Oh, yeah. So my character that I thought was underbaked is Elnor. You know, it's it was intriguing to learn about the Quat Malat, and more importantly, that they trained their the sole male member of their group, Elnor. Um, their commitment to absolute candor was a very interesting approach to society, specifically Romulan society, since they traffic in secrets and lies. So they seem to be in direct conflict with the matter in which their entire whole race behaves. Um, to me, <clears throat> this group of Romulan nuns resembled the Bene Gesserit from the famous Dune series of books. And though for those of you who have never read that series, the, the Bene Gesserit are a powerful and ancient order of women who who influenced politics and religion throughout the, the stories of, of the Dune Tril- the Dune cycle. Um, the Quatmalat appeared to have a similar position in Romulan culture, especially when we found out that they were the mortal en- enemies to the Zatvash. So... I was looking forward to learning more about them through Elnor when he joined the cast um, since he was their primary representative for the majority of the show. Instead, he was presented as either A, a petulant child who was resentful of Picard for abandoning him. That happened a couple of scenes. That was in a couple of scenes. Or a clueless boob who was a fish out of water, as he was when they went down to Free Cloud. Right. Or he was the elfish space ninja who could pop up in places that he shouldn't be. Like, for example, Picard has to get clearance from the Romulans to come onto the Borg cube. Okay. And they give him coordinates where he can only beam to one spot. He can't, and, and he's blocked from going anywhere else. Elnor shows up a little later in that episode. We don't know how the hell he gets there. We don't know how we and, and and the thing is where he shows up is not the same spot where Picard was beamed into. Right. So how he got there, we don't know. We just have to we have to do the magic wand and just ignore that. Right. <laughs> but there you know, this is the thing that kind of gets you, you know. There were episodes where, in some cases, his presence wasn't even apparent. You right. completely forgot that he was there, right. and in many cases, he was used as a, as I said, as a plot device. You know, we had to have somebody pop up and defend Picard. Well, Elnor's there, or we needed to find somebody who's going to fight um, Narissa so she would kill Hugh. Well, that's Elnor. You know, there always seemed to be these plot reasons why he was in the positions he was in, but not not necessarily motivated by character. Right. So, and anyway, we're hoping that there's opportunity in s- next season where he can be fleshed out a lot more because right now he's, he's more penciled in as a character. So we want to move on to the stories that we want to see in season two. And this is real quick for me. All of my... Story, all the storylines I'm really interested in are more about the Romulan society. I want to see more about the Romulan rebirth movement. I want to see more about those Romulan colonies that are on the border of the old neutral zone. And I want to learn much more about the Kuatma Yes,
0: Yeah, so for me, I'm interested in the continued <clears throat> development of the secondary characters. So throughout this podcast, we've spent time identifying areas of improvement for Picard scripts. However, kudos to the writing staff for their creation of complex characterizations for such secondary characters as Rafi, Reels, and Seven, as well as the Romulan caretakers of Picard's Chateau, Laris, and Zabin. We hope the writing staff continues to expand the possibilities for these characters in the next season. However, one word of caution. As Gary has already said, I'm not so crazy about the shipping for the season, I'm not feeling the real Girardi romance or the implied Rafi-7 relationship. Having these internal hookups within such a small crew inhibits the creation of possible storylines that could build on relationships with new characters. I say, let's put the brakes on the shipboard hookups for now and instead look for other avenues of development for these characters. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, now we want to move into uh, some comments that we've received from our listeners. So, um, Gary, um, why don't you go ahead and start?
1: Okay. Okay. So one of them is from Rick St. Peters who's a friend and a listener and actually had downloaded the entire series and watched it in a ben- in a binge. He said on a whole I enjoyed it. I will I will say I probably enjoyed it more for nostalgia than I did for actual season itself. The overall arc of the season felt a bit cobbled together with a number of other sci-fi shows and films with some obvious influences from Battlestar Galactica, Blade Runner, Serenity, etc., cetera, But the cast was first rate and it looked gorgeous. And I'm glad it happened. I am, I am curious for season two, but I remain more excited about Discovery than I do Picard.
0: Hmm. So um, I want to read some comments from Tony Casale, uh, who said, I enjoyed it quite a bit some wonderful nostalgia moments and I liked the premise of the legendary guy now dealing with relevancy although I did feel like the theme wasn't allowed uh wasn't followed up on as much as I would have liked during the rest of the season. I wasn't sure about some of the way his small but important mission had to turn into All life in the galaxy. That's right. That's right. It felt kind of forced. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, I really loved the way they dealt with Data's death because it didn't feel anticlimactic in the film. I'm sorry, because it did feel anticlimactic in the film. And this version of it hit me right in the feels. Sure, it was a little contrived to get us there, But I'm always willing to forgive that if it packs an emotional punch the way stories are supposed to. And I thought this one did. I'll admit it's weird to think about Picard being a synthetic life form now, but I'm looking forward to season two.
1: And then Richard Wesley, who actually is a playwright himself, um, said, I think of season one as an introduction to further adventures facing Picard in future seasons. There's an overarching story of the Romulans and their new outrage at Starfleet for their interference in preventing the destruction of the synths. That alone turns the Romulans into the Klingons for this series. And don't forget Narek, who is still floating out there somewhere. One m- minute he will want to get back into the good graces of the Tal Shiar and that super secret subset, the Zatvash. Vash. The next minute he'll want to He'll want revenge on Seven against Seven for the death of his sister, if she indeed is actually dead. And the next minute after that, he will still be pining for Soji. I've posted elsewhere that the boar cube that crashed landed on the Synth homeworld is crewed by XBs and contains technology far beyond anything. Alton Soong could even dream of. And since the XBs are technically Synths themselves, their political alliance with Soong and the Sense seem natural, and that can present its own set of problems for Starfleet. The ban against sense may have been lifted, but that doesn't mean that everyone in the Federation agrees. So now the Romulans... Can have sympathetic ears within Starfleet and Sung, and the sense may want to defend themselves with some of that advanced Borg tech. And smash in the middle of it is Peacemaker Picard, <laughs> patrolling the quadrant like some sort of outer space Marshall Dylan. At least that's my thought. I'm almost fine with the novelization. I'm also fine with the novelization format, stretching the story over an entire season. It allows for far more exploration of character and plot.
0: So the only uh, thing that I want to disagree with what he said is that he said that the tech of the Borg, you know, uh, is more imaginative. More advanced. More advanced. Yeah. But... That's only if we choose to forget about the imagination device. Oh, yeah. Which I hope they just act like that never happened. Ah, I just really hope that, too. that that thing, that device was just... In fact, I'm going to stop talking about yeah, it.
1: Act, yeah, act, yeah. You, let's, you, you let's, know what you know how we ought to treat it? Right. We ought to treat it like Cyborg.
0: <laughs>
1: we ought to treat it like right. Cyborg, Right, right.
0: right. Like, you know,
1: we most most Star Trek fans know that Spock didn't have an older brother,
0: right? So we'll so we'll we'll just, we'll, we'll, just we'll imagine that the imagination device right. never exists. Exactly,
1: exactly, exactly. So let's move on to other Star Trek news before we close out this episode. So, so, one of the things, if you're interested, um, there will be a Star Trek Picard soundtrack.
0: Well, it's now, it's actually now. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. It's yeah. yeah, it's now available on Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon Music, Dweezer, and Tidal. Ooh, it's up there with Jay-Z.
0: <laughs>
1: the 55 track release features the original score... For this Emmy of the Emmy Award winning composer Jeff Russo, who, you know, also wrote the music for Star Trek Discovery. Mm-hmm. But it also includes the song Blue Skies performed by Isa Briones, who we know plays Soji and Dodge and Sutra.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> As a bonus, there are also two tracks from the short tracks, uh, Children of Mars, which Coincidentally, is a good lead-in to our other Star Trek news item.
0: So today, and actually when we're doing this episode, it's just about the end of the day uh, for uh, the celebration for First Contact Day. That's right, April 5th. Uh, Yeah, so as you know, uh, First Contact Day happened on April 5th. Uh, The cause of celebration won't actually occur for another 43 years into the fictional future.
1: future.
0: Right, right, right. Uh, That was the day that engineer Zephyrin Cochran uh, deploys a warp drive in space for the first time on the Phoenix spaceship. This action created a signature in space-time that attracted the attention of friendly Vulcan aliens passing nearby our solar system this event was dramatized in the 1996 movie star trek first contact directed by jonathan frakes and with and without a doubt the best of the next generation feature films first contact is also the day of the mars attack as dramatized in children of mars yep so in closing we'll be back next month with more star trek news We're hopeful by then we'll at least have the premiere date of season three of Star Trek Discovery. But until that time.
1: Like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter, at Facebook, and at our website, StarTrekAOD.net, where you can find additional articles on Star Trek canon, interesting sidebar issues, and other aspects of the show. Also email the show at Star Trek AOD at gmail.com. But until then,
0: live long and prosper.